So last week, Brennan did a great job. I need to uh, wet my whistle. Talking about Saul becoming Paul and the work of grace. And um, I might have to partner with you here, Mark, to do this because the clicker's not clicking. Could you just click the next slide for me? There we are. It's one thing to talk about a person who's made some bad mistakes before they've met Christ, right? I mean, when you hear my story before I met Jesus with drug addiction, with problems with the law, all those kinds of things, you go, yeah, that, that's because you didn't know Jesus. But it's a whole other thing to think about, what about when we mess up, and I mean mess up badly, after Christ? What is our picture of Jesus then? What's really going on in our hearts and minds? If, I, if, if I'm running along and my, my life, next slide, Mark, looks like a train wreck. It's just come off the rails. And I've, I've even had warning lights. I've even had either people saying things to me or a sense in my own spirit of, whoa, whoa, you, you, you're, you're running crazy here. And your life is a train wreck. You know, Peter is making his declaration. He's saying, listen, Lord, A whole bunch of people could deny you. I'll never deny you. And then he hears from God himself. Listen, Pete. Before the cock throws three times, crows three times, you will deny me. And despite knowing that, he has this wreck. And one of the biggest problems that we have as believers is, what what do I do if, if my life is like that? And if we're in an atmosphere where there's not a place to talk about it or confess it, if there's not a sense of grace, like Paul talking about grace. Aren't you glad that Paul has Romans 7 in there where it says, you know what, the good I ought to do, I don't do. You read that and you go, hmm, that's true for me too. I struggle with the things I know to do, I don't seem to do. And so next slide, Mark, there's, there's a head game that happens. You have all these voices that beat you up and all these things that come after you. Because think about what we hear on this planet, here on earth. Think about what maybe you heard in school or in your family or maybe even in church, unfortunately. When you mess up and you've been warned, what do you usually hear? What are some things? I told you so. That's a big one, isn't it? And sometimes they preface it with, I hate to tell you this, but I told you so. And you'd be like, no, you don't need to tell me that. What else do you hear? You'll never change. Yep. What else? I knew you couldn't do it. I should have known better. You have this coming. Yeah, now we sentence ourselves, don't we? I deserve this, right? It piles in, and, and you have these crazy thoughts. And all those thoughts, for us to think that it's possible to have a different response from God Almighty, the perfect one, is so otherworldly. It's not what we experience here. I can remember coming home from school, and uh, when we moved to Port Washington, it's third grade. And... Uh, just trying to find your groove. And the, the first kid that I sat next to, 
in, in, in the role that I came in was Rob Allen. And uh, five minutes into the class, as, we're, as we're, we're sitting there, I'm here and Rob Allen's there. He, get, he gets this big plastic straw up when the teacher's writing on the board. And then he takes out this big gooey spitball, puts it in the shooter and goes, and it wings right by her head. Splat! She whirls around. She's just giving kind of that third grade teacher, do that again and I'll kill you look, you know? And uh, so she, I think, tries to ignore it and it'll go away trick and she goes back to the board and Rob Allen, Rob Allen, hands me the straw. This is my chance to be cool. So I rip off a piece of paper and I start chewing on it. And I'm getting nervous. And I think, okay, she hasn't turned around in a while. And I get ready and I go like this. (gasps) (coughs) I'm hacking. Because I'm hacking and dying, I got the straw right there. And she turns around and what? What? So she takes me out in the hallway. She sends me down to the principal who called my parents. My mom goes, already, Mark? Yes, mom, I'm sorry. But I got tangled up with Rob Allen. We became partners in crime. And my mom used to say, don't sit next to Rob Allen. And what would I do? I'd go sit next to Rob Allen. And if you sit next to Rob Allen, what happens? You become like, you get in trouble. You become like Rob Allen. And my mom would always say, I told you so. Why won't you learn? And really, in my brain, you know, I was like, why won't I learn? I feel so hopeless and helpless. Next slide, Mark. I, you know, I'd beat myself up and be like, why can't I change? Why can't I do better? And it, it, it haunted me. And I, it's like the harder I would try, it, it's like when you're dieting, and, or, or, or the doctor says, you can't eat any more of this. Like, you, you can't have apple pie anymore. No more apple pie. What do you crave? You dream about apple pies. Cars look like apple pies. Your spouse looks like apple pie. I mean, everything looks like apple pie. All you can think about is apple pie. It's like the forbidden fruit, and you're just beating yourself. Up. Why can't I change? Next slide, Mark. And what we do is we, we sentence ourselves. We, we, we send ourselves to hell on earth. We, we're stuck in the corner with a dunce hat on, and we keep saying this, I will be good, I will be good, I will be good, I will be good. And the more you say, I will be good, you're what? Rob Allen, you're bad. And you get caught in a cycle, so we'll have to click through these, Mark. The cycle looks like this. Go ahead, click it. You start out. In, in your little personal hell, I will be good, I will be good. But what happens then is I'm not that good. I'm just not that good. And then the next thing that happens is, so I must be bad. Right? I, I must be bad. But I'll try harder. Surely I can try harder. And you try harder, and you realize I can't get through Romans 7. The good I should do, I can't do. I just can't get past it. And I'm trying, trying, trying. You know me, I, I like to follow what's happening in the brain research. And I'll tell you, addiction is scary, what we're learning about addiction. And how it attracts us and promises us heaven on earth. 
And it starts hitting our pleasure center at first. At first. But after it gets you to a place where it's got its claws into you, and now you're addicted, something else happens and it moves from the pleasure center to a place that's more associated with pain. And what addiction actually feels like, Brendan, stand up here once. Come on. (laughs) Smile. What addiction actually feels like is someone poking you like this. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Is that annoying or what? I just got my tennis shoes. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. And, And so you have a compulsion, just like you would stop the pain, the way you think you can stop the pain is to, is to participate in the addiction. And unfortunately, I've worked with 26 fallen pastors who, if you met them and you knew them, some of which are some of the premier pastors in the cities or have been in the past, and they were trapped in addiction. They had no place to go to say, I can't fix this. Their souls were so bone dry They just wanted a hit of something that felt good. And when it felt so good, it quickly moved from being pleasure-centered to this. So much so that I know a pastor that would actually drink a hearty amount of vodka before he got in the pulpit. And he felt so ashamed. He felt so alone. He felt so crippled, so wrong, so messed up, so broken. But he had no place to go. And he had this pounding addiction haunting him. And the only way he could find relief was, I'm just going to get it over with. And the more that you get it over with and the more that you participate in it, the more the chains grow. And so when you, when you look at failures and addictions and behaviors that we can't get an easy grip on, we're challenged with, we're, 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 we struggle with this. Because, man, if God can change Saul into Paul, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I change? And it messes with our picture of Jesus for sure, doesn't it? Not just messing with the picture of me. It's messing with my picture of Jesus. And so what we need, Mark, next slide, is we need to go to the, the text and we need to let the credible witness, we need to let the expert witness speak to us about what does Jesus do when we mess up after being a Christian? After you've been baptized, after you've been a churchgoer, what does he do when I mess up? And the question we really want to see is, we want to see, will the real Jesus please stand up? We want the real Jesus to stand up in our heart and in our mind and help us to know. So open your Bibles to John 21. And we're going to take a look at this really important text. Man, the more I studied it, The last few weeks, the more I thought, man, we could do an entire series about what do we do with brokenness and addiction. And, oh, my gosh, there's just tons here. Starting in verse 2, it says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now pause for a moment. There's lots going on here. I mean, really, think about Peter and the disciples. It is wild. 
It's been hard enough for them to get their heads around that this Jesus really is the Christ, right? But if he, if he is the Christ, why does he die? And then he dies in the most public and brutal way, and then seemingly he's resurrected. They've seen him two times before this time that's going to come. Now, we read that and we take it for granted. That's a mind bender. I mean, just think about if, if you had a friend or relative that dies, and then a week later you see him walking around. That'd blow your mind, wouldn't it? You're like, what's going on? Am I seeing things? And, and, and not, not, not only that, but the pressure that you feel. Because now Christians are not in vogue. You know, so there's, there's lots of pressure. And then plus Pete's mind is, is, is blown and his heart is shattered. He knows he's denied the Lord. He knows. He knows he's failed. He knows he's blown it. And what do we do when we've blown it? We, we just naturally go back to what we know to do. He said, I, I guess I don't know anything, but I'm going to fish. And you know, it's not just Pete. The other guys go, yeah, let's go. Incidentally, next slide, Mark. Uh, not too long ago, they discovered a boat that they call the Jesus boats, probably around the time. So next slide, Mark. To give you some idea of its size, there's a guy sitting next to it. It's really no bigger than one of our little Alumacraft things, a little dinghy kind of a thing. Just to give you a perspective of when these guys go fishing, it's not like they're on, you know, one of these uh, crab fishing deals that is in the, the cold waters of Alaska or something. They're in this little precarious dinghy thing, and that's, that's how life looks for them. So when they're screaming bloody murder... When the storms are coming, it just gives you a little bit of perspective. But let's read on. Look at verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 5. He called out to them, Friends, have you had any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Does this sound familiar? Does this ring a bell with Peter? Peter, you caught anything? No, been fishing all night. Well, go ahead, drop your nets on the right side. And bam. So I want you to see a couple of things here that's really important. Here's Jesus entering the scene, and, and they're not recognizing him. They're not seeing him. And, the, and also, Peter, the public failure, is in the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but when I would do my worst mess-ups, in fact, I remember junior year, I was in legal trouble. I was supposed to be on house arrest. Somehow, I convinced my mom that I had to work on a project with a bunch of guys, and I was just going to get in trouble. My mom is a little 5'2 Irish lady. with soft on. If you call my mom, this is how she answers the phone. Hello? really sweet. And all my friends knew Georgie Spencer as this sweet little five foot two inch Irish lady. Mark goes out. My mom calls the house I'm supposed to be at and the cat is out of the bag. Mom gets into our car. You talk about Hawaii Five-0. I'm, I'm with the, I'm with the Gosewer boys and a couple other guys and I don't know all the stuff that we were doing. We're walking up this hill, going to this next party, and my mom comes around. 
it's a four-wheel slide, and I swear to God, that car was not in park when she got out. It, it was just like Clint Eastwood, Arnold Schwarzenegger. The thing, the Goldsware boys were the bullies of the town. They're going, ah, they're screaming like little girls at this five-foot-two-inch woman who's coming out. The tires are smoking, and she sounded like God. Mark Russell Spencer! The hair shook. Bodies fled. The bark was stripped from trees. Roofs blew off. It was a serious deal. Right? You know the tone people, when you messed up as a kid and they use the middle name, it's going to be ugly. Right? So you think... If it's going to work like the world works, what Jesus is going to do is, hey, boneheads, get in here, right? Like a football coach. Our coach used to say, Spencer, get over here and bring that thing you call a body with you. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, whatever they can do to demean you, you know, and that's what we're used to, right? Get called to the boss's office, principal office, police, whatever it is. You're not expected. What does Jesus do? It's so otherworldly. It's so unlike what we experience on the planet. Hey, guys, did you catch any fish? No. Try this. Bam. It's wild. And what he's doing is, number one, he's starting with something that's very important for us to start with. Is your life working? Is what you're doing working? Dr. Phil says it all the time. How's that working for you? Right? The question is, is that, guys, what you're doing right now, is it working? No. Well, of course it's not. You're not doing it with me. So do it with me and see what happens. Bam. 153 fish. Wow. And then the second thing that he's doing is he's beginning to remind them. It's so important that we remember and we be reminded of how the Lord works in our life. Peter's probably going, oh, I remember this. Oh, yeah, look at all those fish. Next verse, verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John. Sharon did a great job talking about John. He gets it. Peter's going to get it. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. Bingo, John. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it's the Lord, he wrapped on his outer garment and jumped into the water and headed for Jesus. When they used to fish, they'd kind of, they'd take everything else off and they'd fish in their DVDs because they didn't want to get super wet. You saw the boat. It's not all that big. So when he hears it's the Lord, he doesn't want to wait until they get the net in. He doesn't want to wait until they can row in. He jumps in. And it's a beautiful picture of when we see Jesus as he really is, you should make a beeline, addicted or not. Get out of the boat. Stop what you're doing. Swim to Jesus now. Now. Start there. That's the right picture. You see, in Hebrews, Mark, if you can hit... This next one, in Hebrews 4, it starts with this. Nothing, no, go back, you had it. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Boy, do we know that when we screwed up, don't we? 
We tiptoe around. I hope he didn't see that. We know he did. We know he knows what's going on here. We know that. Nothing in Christian is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. Ah, stop saying that. We get it. He's the one who we're accountable. Boy, do we know that. But look what follows now, Mark. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his judgment. What do we receive? Say it again. It's your chance to preach one more time. Mercy, undeserved favor. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. You can't rustle it up. You can't piece it together. You can only get it one place. And the invitation is, when you know your life is laid bare before the eyes of him, with whom we have to do account, make a beeline for the priest. He gets in between. He goes, Father, this is Spencer. He's dumb, but I love him. He's covered in my blood. We're going to work with him. He's going to get it. He's, he's going to get it. He's slow, but he's going to get it. I see it. Father, I'm between. You see, we, we lose this because we think, the only way it works is with Saul's, not Paul's. We think it only works with the Simons, not the Peters. But we're seeing it clearly here, are we not? Next slide. What does it mean that this shepherd leaves the 99 to go get the one? He's not talking about dogs. He's talking about sheep. Us. When I have lost my way, when I have broken down, when I have fumbled the ball, when I have done what I know I shouldn't do and I've been warned, he comes looking. Let it get in your heart and your head, people. Our good shepherd is otherworldly. He's nothing like this place. He doesn't come screaming your middle name. He doesn't come with a thunderbolt in hand. He comes with a shepherd's crook to gather you and to say, Come on back. Next slide, Mark. Look what he does. Jesus said to him, come have breakfast. Jesus cooks breakfast. Wouldn't you like tomorrow morning you wake up and there's coffee already made? And Jesus is sitting there at the table? Grab a cup, Mark. Let's sit down. It can be. I don't know if he'll come and make coffee for you, but he's there to sit down. And what I love about this is Jesus is busy about making a safe place. He knows these guys have been fishing all night. They're hungry. Right? So he makes them breakfast. And I love this part. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They're still like us. They're still, ooh, snap, it's the Lord. Oh! Right? That's what they're doing. They're doing what us. We always do. Next slide, Mark. But what's going to happen is a do-over. You see, we, we think do-overs end. We think when, when we've had too many, there's a, there's a, 
A termination on do-overs. We think, that there's no way he'll give me a do-over. There's no, Peter, you're done. Three times, man, you blew it, you're out. Three strikes, you're out. Too bad, buddy. It's a do-over. And Jesus comes to him to explain this. I think Christians really don't get forgiveness. And what the cross did. Where is the cross? What the cross did. That thing beckons always. The minute we plead the blood, it calls to the Father. Forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't understand. But we'll get them to understand. So let's work with them, Father. Here's the deal. If the mercies of the Lord are new every morning, if you wake up in the morning and you're breathing, you've got another chance. You've got another do-over. You get another opportunity. You get another swing. You do. It's there for you. And the way that Jesus does this is really interesting. Look later on in the text in verse 15. You think that someone would ask the question, Peter, what happened? Peter, what were you thinking? Were you afraid? Did you forget that I warned you? None of that happens. Look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Next slide, Mark. The question in this moment is, do you love me? That's what Jesus is getting. What's, he's after the heart. The issues of our life are in our heart. What do we love? When I'm addicted, I'm loving something more than he. When I'm obstinate, when I'm hard-headed, I'm loving something more. I'm, I'm allowing that thing to take preeminence over. The issue is what's happening here. Paul said, and this is so important, he said, in my ministry, the love of Christ compels me. What's happening in our heart in this moment is what's critical. And what Jesus wants us, us to see, and he wanted Peter to see is, I love you. Now let that ricochet back. Be free. Just like, think, think of the lost animal. In this case, the lost sheep. And every time it's lost, the good shepherd goes to find him. Puts that sheep over his shoulders. Brings him back. At some point in time, that sheep is going to understand, man, this shepherd is mind-blowing. My daughter and, uh, just got a dog. And it was one of those rescued dogs that unfortunately had been beaten. And you know what happens with a dog like that when you approach them. What do they do? They cower, just like this, right? And you know you can't just rush right towards them, right? You've got to woo them. And now, in just two weeks' time, it's been amazing, all the wooing, all the people who have just gotten down, come here, Banjo, come here. And he just kind of waddles up a little bit, cautiously. But now when he comes to the house, he shoots up the stairs. He runs up. He does a four-leg slide into the kitchen, looks for food, which is coming, sits down, and just, ha. He's at home. He gets it. 
He was loved in such a way that it releases love back. Revelation 2 says this. This is the warning Jesus, Jesus is giving to this church. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you fall. Repent and do the things you did first. The Lord's restoring. He's reminding Peter. He's telling you to get a chance to do over. But let this happen out of love, not out of compulsion, not out of grit, not of just holding your breath and doing it. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie about Rich Mullins called Ragamuffin. Do you know Rich Mullins? Our God is an awesome God. I'm going to play this clip because I can't, I can't preach like this. I can't preach this well. It says what I hope you get in about three minutes. Would you watch this clip, please? And we'll close. Hey, can I play your tape? What is it? This is Preacher, Brendan Manning. In the 33 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the mountains of western Pennsylvania, and the literally thousands of hours of prayer and meditation, silence, solitude in those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus will ask one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers will respond and say, I believed in your love. And I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, our practice, church-going, are going to answer, well, frankly, no, sir. I never really believed it. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and intensity of God's love. But then again, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, our pessimism, our low self-esteem, our self-hatred and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see now why it's so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. We make God in our own image, and he winds up being as fussy and rude and narrow-minded and judgmental and legalistic and unloving and unforgiving as we are. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Seattle, San Diego, and St. Louis, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is too small for me. Because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God who is revealed in and by Jesus Christ, who at this moment comes to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame, dishonesty and degraded love that's darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word to you is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are, not as you should be. 
because none of us are as we should be. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we get ready to do the offering, once again, it's so important that we offer you our whole heart. And we receive that dare, that we would dare to believe that right now, though you know all the skeletons in our closet, though you know all the places where we're stuck, all the failures, you love us right where we are. We're not yet as we should be. You're about working that out. But right now, the important thing is to let our heart make a beeline to you, the great high priest. So we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.